this critic. We've been speaking to it in different ways, and I'm going to reiterate some of those points in different ways. As my friend and colleague, Spirit Rock teacher Wes Niska says, we've lost the operating instructions. We've got these great brains, very sophisticated, but we've lost the on switch and the off switch and the, the manual. Where's the manual how to work this stuff? Well, Buddhism, in a way, is a kind of a manual, amongst other various teachings, depth psychology and others that they point the way out of this. So the way I understand it um, is that we develop uh, an inner critic, a superego structure, as a way to survive. It's a survival mechanism. It's a way to um, uh, work with the more primal instincts, the powerful emotions of our being. And as an infant, as a child, we have to learn very quickly, uh, intuitively, sometimes pre-verbally, how to uh, stay alive, how to fit in with the family system, how to, how to incorporate the norms and the values of the culture, the family, the religion, society, siblings. And so we have to learn very quickly what, what we should do, what we shouldn't do to maximize love, maximize connection, maximize attachment. So we're in some ways very smart. Um, and the superego structure in the ego structure is the way that helps maintain that. Um, first talked about by Freud, and this is from Freud. He says, the installation of the superego can be described as a successful instance of identification with the parental agency. While as development proceeds, the superego takes on the influence of those who've shaped into place, those who have stepped into the place of parents, educators, teachers, people chosen as ideal models, often the church. So the superego can be thought of as a type of conscience that punishes misbehavior with feelings of guilt. That's from Freud. The superego strives to act in a socially appropriate manner, whereas the id, the more primal force of our being, wants instant self-gratification. The superego controls our sense of right and wrong and guilt. It helps us to fit into society by getting us to act in socially acceptable ways. Right, and because of, because this is a primal survival mechanism, th- th- there's an intensity to the superego. Like if 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 anger is not allow- acceptable in our family, and that involves and that and that results in extreme um, uh, reaction from the parents, you need a strong structure internally to dampen down a child's innate anger and rage. Right, it has to be very powerful, a very shaming mechanism to withdraw that life force so we can get what we need in that family, right? It makes sense. Very healthy, very functional, very useful. The problem is, once we no, no longer need that, that social structure, or we need to fit in in such an intense way, the mechanism gets hardwired. The shoulding, the guilting, the shaming becomes somewhat... Uh, rigidified. So what happens is we internalize the 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 needs um, and the demands, the expectations of our caregivers. So at some point now, as you're left home and living on your own, you don't need the voice of your parents because you have that internal right, wrong, should, shouldn't voice in your head. What I also notice. Um, this is more my own observation. I haven't really come across this so much in the literature, but is that the superego is a way 
just in the in the similar way that our thinking mind in general is a way of sub, um, subverting our feeling of intense feeling, intense emotion. So often we might be we might feel something, um, intense fear or rage or sadness or guilt, and um, very quickly, almost immediately, we start thinking about it as a way of, of mitigating or lessening the intensity of the feeling. And the superego does that. Rather than feel um, like, say, you've really let someone down in a very, very painful way, rather than feel that remorse, you, you go into your critic and judgment and thinking as a way of avoiding. It's a, sort of a deeply habitual way we have of avoiding feelings because in, when we were young, a lot of feelings were intolerable. And we had to find other ways to cope and often that was through thinking. So because of this, because of the nature of how this mechanism is set up, the critic structure has us believe that, it's nece- that it is necessary for our survival, which at some point in some ways it was. And so there's a tremendous sense of loyalty that happens and a sense of belief. I need this to figure out how to move in the world. I need this to decide what's right and what's wrong. I need this for my moral compass. That's the view. As we mature, and as partic- as partic- particularly as we develop, um, refine our meditative awareness, mindfulness, presence, we understand that conscience and perception and um, social interactions and communications come, can come from much higher functioning parts of our, our mind and our being than just this more rigid uh, superego structure that, some, that somehow gets a little uh, trapped in a very young phase of development. It's probably fully formed by about the age of eight and often has that very primitive, that's good, that's bad, you're right, you're wrong. Right? Simple of an eight-year-old. And then of course, another thing, the important thing to know about this, the superego is what we do inside, we do outside. And what we do outside, we do inside. Have you noticed that? Kind of goes both ways, like a swing door. Mother Teresa said, "If you judge people, you have no time to love them." There's this cartoon in the New Yorker of um, this couple who were doing, you know, simplifying their lives, and one 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 of the couples saying to the other, "Well, first we're going to have to get rid of your crap first. So, good to notice how we experience the critic. It's not just mental. Often it's mental. This is bad, you're wrong, you screwed up, I can't believe you said that, right? Just simple, clear statements. But often we experience it emotionally. We experience it, and one of the ways you can know whether your critic is operating is you feel deflated. You feel it physically collapsed, deflated, Suddenly you lose energy, your, your vision goes foggy, you feel dull, you suddenly feel like you want to take a nap, you feel sleepy, right? There's a sense of, yeah, you, you do this great thing at work or somewhere, some presentation, some thing, and then someone just undermines it with some offhanded comment, like, well, that wasn't very good. And then you just, you know, whatever pride or happiness that you've done this great thing, suddenly just, hmm. I'm always a failure. 
So we feel it physically, we feel it emotionally. There's a sense of helplessness, hopelessness, despair, unworthiness, shame, guilt. So to notice the different levels, physical, emotional, energetic. So there are different perspectives on on how to work with the critic, and I'll say more about that this afternoon. But there's a point of view that understands that the critic is really just a, uh, a doorway to something deeper. It's a, it's a triggering mechanism. It gets triggered under certain circumstances. And it's an indicator uh, for different things. So one of the things that I think of it as a doorway, it's a doorway for finding out what's underneath the judgment. What fear, what view, what what... Um, anticipation has been triggered, what, what anxiety. So if we notice the judgment and then we say, well, let's just feel what's here, what, and we feel, oh, there's shame, there's embarrassment, there's guilt, there's, there's um, unworthiness, there's abandonment, there's fear of disapproval. Oh, that's what's going on here. I need to fit in. I need to be loved. I need to be approved of. I need to have, have people like me. Very understandable feelings. And again, it's why it's important to remember the place of compassion. To remember that the critic is suffering, is painful. If we can acknowledge, oh, this is painful, this view, this idea about myself, it's painful it actually allows the heart to engage when we can recognize the suffering, painful nature of it. So I had this experience a long time ago um, when I was meditating. Uh, this is like pretty soon after I'd started meditating in my early 20s. And I was living in this retreat center and doing some intensive meditation and I just my, I just sitting with my critic and just going on and on and on and on about this and that and this and that and instead of just believing it or going along with it and thinking it was true I, I started to feel I started to f- put myself on I started to feel the impact of it like how it is to be talked to like that day in day out day in day out and it's very cruel it's very harsh it's mean and it's dismissive and it's rejecting. And so I started to feel like, just as if someone was talking to me like another human being, I started to feel how that landed. It lands in the heart as really intense pain and sadness and bereftness and loss and, and just, and, and it's just yuck, right? And so, but we, don't, we rarely make that shift. We, we, we say so, so allied with our mind, we don't, shift the allegiance to the receiver of those thoughts, which is us, which is our body and our heart. To actually feel, what's it like to talk to me to say I'm pathetic, or I'm a jerk, or I'm a loser, or I'm never going to get anywhere, or I'm a failure, or I'm unlovable. Like, What's it like to actually feel those as if someone else said them to you? Because again, because we're trying to 
shift below the content, which is the, the, the content of the story, into well, what's this actually like in my experience? So a story, this is from uh, one of Jack's books, uh, D.S. Bennett, tells a story. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I'd just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so my timing was not great. She answered... She answered, how could anyone ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. So this she's writing in the mid-60s. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese which I'd carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep, you're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So very powerful what we as human beings endure and what's beautiful about the story is the tenacity of the heart. That some part of us knows how to love even in desperate circumstances. So as I mentioned with practice, with attention, with kindness, we can make tremendous headway with our critic. And again, the key point is not about getting rid of the critic, because the critic probably is not going away, is not going to pack up its bags very easily or very happily or very quickly or very lightly. Just like all those times you wanted to meditate, you'd be meditating and wanted your mind to shut the hell up. Right? Which why would my mind just stop thinking and worrying and catastrophizing and let me just be peaceful. Well the mind isn't gonna shut up either. (laughs) It's what it does. The mind thinks. It's what it's designed to do. So the purpose isn't in meditation to get rid of thoughts. The, person, the purpose is to find a wise way to relate to that thinking process. So with the critic, the practice is to develop a wise relationship to the, to the critic. And over time, as we develop that, it will lose some of its energy, its power, its frequency, etc., until at times it becomes periodically quiet. Like I notice in my experience, sometimes it gets quiet for a long time. But it never fully goes away, because any condition 
you know, I dropped my plate in the middle of the dining room on a mindfulness silent retreat. <laughs> Hello, guess who's coming back? <laughs> Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. <laughs> he dropped his plate on a mindfulness retreat. <laughs> So, so the point is that we, as we learn to see it, we, it, it, what mindfulness does is it creates space around things, and this, in this case, creates space around our critics. So we have more space. It, there's, there's more room between us and it. So we have more spaciousness to respond, to to work creatively with it, for it to impact less. So an example of this, I was teaching a course up the hill and I was working with um, an actor who, um, by nature of the profession, has to deal with a lot of critics. Um, I think think it was um, Strauss or some great composer once said, no statue has ever been erected for a critic. Anyhow, so he's walking down the hill and he's, he's working with his actors, working, working with his mind, his thoughts and, and usual tirade of stuff going on about his life and meditation. And at some point out of the silence and out of his awareness practice, he really, the thought arises alongside all the other berating, judging thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're just thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of stories. Nothing more, nothing less. Like words from a manuscript, from a play. Just a bunch of words. Right? For those of you who had that insight, you'll understand the power of that insight. When we see, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts strung together that I somehow take to be ultimate reality and the decider of whether I'm a good human being or not. It's just a bunch of thoughts that are rattling around in this coconut. That's all the critic is from one perspective. From a perspective of awareness, it's just a stream of thoughts, a stream of consciousness that has particular weight. It's loaded for us. So it's about coming into wise relationship with, with, with it. This is from Suzuki Roshi from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He's talking about thoughts, but it applies to the critic. When you're practicing meditation, don't try to stop your thinking. Let it stop by itself. If something comes into your mind, let it come in and let it go out. It will not stay long. When you try to stop your thinking, it means you're bothered by it. Don't be bothered by anything. It appears that the something comes from outside your mind, but actually it's only the waves of your mind. And if you're not bothered by the waves, gradually they will become calmer and calmer. Many sensations, thoughts, and images arise and come and go just like waves. If you leave your mind as it is, it will become calm. This is called big mind. So same with our critic. This is, this is from Byron Katie, who puts it in a slightly different way. Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. It's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. That's the critic right there. The production of what isn't true. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. Until there's peace within you, there is no peace in the world. 
When you're in dreamless sleep at night, is there a world? Not until you wake up and say, I. When the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. If there's no, if there's no attachment, it's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. <laughs> I live in completeness, all of us do, although we may not realize it. I don't know anything. I don't have to figure anything out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere, and now I exist as a don't-know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. So this is someone who's radically disidentified from this thought stream, partly through that process that she, she does, questioning beliefs, thoughts, is it true? Can I know that's true? But it's possible. And I've done it with my own practice. I've watched other, many people do it through their own practice. Using the clarity of mindfulness, of awareness, to look more objectively, more neutrally, at our mind, at our, the contents of our mind. And to ask those questions. Is this true? Oh, it is true. Well, I think it's true. Okay. Does this mean something about who I am? Maybe, maybe not. So we'll do a little more sitting in a moment, partly because I want to balance the information about the critic with actually coming into a direct experience of working with it. So if you'd like to get yourself comfortable. So I'm noticing today as I'm teaching, I'm struck by this profound, poignant sadness, or profound poignancy, like tenderness, like I'm feeling the tenderness of this work. And my heart feels tenderized by this material, because it's actually, it's very sad. It's really sad that we have this phenomena called the critic that makes our lives miserable. You know, the net result is it's really sad. It's sad for you, it's sad for me, it's sad for the world, right? And, uh, you know, most people we know probably have a similar version, right? Critic 2.0, you know, or 3.7 or whatever it is. And maybe you know people who are beautiful, lovely human beings, who you can see how they torture themselves. It's easy to see it sometimes in another person. You know, someone who's bright and smart and kind or successful or you know, just a good human being, and they're just down on themselves, judging, hating, pushing, depriving self-rejecting, and it's just really painful to watch. I've seen people self-destruct because of this mechanism. And I've seen people being 
uh, hampered with depression and unable to get out of it because of this mechanism, because of the belief, because of the identification with the critic. <clears throat> Not just the only thing, but... So I appreciate the fact that you've all come here to, to, to look at this material because it's, it's not, you know, it's not a fun workshop on yoga toes and bliss, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, this is work, this is the work side of spiritual practice, right? As Jung said, the, the process of enlightenment does not happen by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness, unco- making the darkness and the unconscious conscious shining light onto the onto the darkness he said this latter process however is disagreeable and therefore not very popular <laughs> right who wants to sign up for doing a workshop on the inner critic oh me 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 that sounds really fun <laughs> no you're here because it's work it's you're here because you're suffering Right? And, it's, and you know, you could say that the jewel of this work, the, the critic, is it gets us to, to look, at, to look, to, to be, we have to sometimes be desperate to get ourselves to, to look and see what's going on, to meditate, to do spiritual work, and certainly the critic will do that. So it motivates us to find a way to be peaceful. You know, you may, you may be on vacation somewhere beautiful, and it's everything is great, but you're miserable inside because your mind is tormenting you. That is suffering, period. Makes me really sad. Self-inflicted torture. We don't need enemies. So again, it comes. So what's a, what's needed is kindness. What's needed is compassion. What's needed is forgiveness for our humanness. We didn't ask to be like this. We didn't choose to be hard on ourselves, right? It's just the 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 hard wiring that you got and the conditioning that you got. Right? So it's great that you're here. It's great that you have resources to look at this stuff, to find ways to work with it skillfully. So the meta practice, which I just introduced, we'll do more this afternoon, is one of the great antidotes to the critic because it's a practice, it's, it's, a, it's a using phrases that express our deepest wish for ourselves, which is go flies against, you know, goes against the, the, it's the opposite of what the critic's wanting or demanding or saying. May I be safe, may I be happy, may I be unconditionally peaceful, may I be live with ease, may I love myself, may I be happy. Right? It's what the heart in its, in its un, unbridled self once it wants us and all life to be happy it's the nature of the heart to wish well so the meta practice is using that so um, I teach it to people when I'm doing this work with people I work with this subject a lot one-on-one with people my coaching therapy practice 
when I say to people, hey, you know, after every time you judge yourself, you add a metaphrase. God, that was such a pathetic meditation, and may I be happy. <laughs> but your car still, like, God, oh, I can't believe it, and may I be peaceful. And you forgot your lunch, oh my God, that's so stupid, and may I be peaceful. And you just add a bunch of words, you know, they have to be kind words. When it neutralizes the words, you see it's all words, until you replace it with something that's kind. Every time you know, are you judging someone else, God, that person looks like such a jerk. May you be happy. You know, it really changes the mind stream. You, two things can't exist in the mind at one time. Hatred and love cannot coexist. If you replace hatred with love, then love is present. Very powerful, very simple. A lot of these practices are very simple. But they require practice. <laughs> if you counted up how many judgments you've, you've said in, in your lifetime, right? It's a lot. So, to counteract that, weight requires some momentum, some 10,000 hours. Like we're all PhD experts in the critic. So, so any comments, questions about what I said earlier, the meditation, or anything else that's present? We'll, we'll take a we'll take a lunch break shortly. If we can get a mic um, over here, where's our mic runner or where's our mic Virginia in the, down here by the wall? If you raise your hands, lady in the lady with the blue coat first. That's you or the blue swift shawl? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm curious about, um, I don't know if it's accurate to say a positive criticism, but um, a sense of superiority that is just as um, false, unrealistic, as, you know, you're no good. Um, That... Also, shall we say, is inherited. Um, inherited. Yeah, I don't think the mic is working that well, but um, it's good. No, it's good. Is it working? Okay, yeah. sorry. Um, it's good enough. Yeah, um, <laughs> and um, you know, I wrestle with it, and I don't. Oh, slowly, slowly, you know, I see it over time, you know, as for what it is and that it isn't true and, you know, that I just kind of relinquish it. But would you call that the inner critic also? It seems like it to me. The inflation, deflation? The inflation yeah. superiority? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's yeah. For and sure. it's harder. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because it's it gets two sides of the same coin. You know, yeah. one moment you're inflated and superior, and then you do some step out of line, boom, you're now you know on the bottom again. Right. So again, it's not buying into the superiority or the inflation because you know in any second you're going to get struck down. So again, it, uh-huh. so you give any of those weight, then you you strengthen that same tendency. Yeah. So, and often the superiority is a, is a defense against the inferiority, and the inflation is a defense against the deflation. So, um, just to notice it, notice, and you, know, you have to get rid of it. Just oh, look at that! I'm feeling superior and better than all these people, and I have better critics than them. And, okay, and you know. 
Am I saying the superego is manic? Um, uh, yeah, yes, it can be that sort of, yeah, holding both poles. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so we, that's why we want to be very mindful of when that voice is like, oh, doing well, you're great, you're doing really great, to watch that that's not the, the same voice as the critic, and it, which is different than, oh, I, I, I did, I, that was really great, I, you know, I, I gave a really good performance in this thing I did. That's just a, a discernment versus, oh, yeah, you know, a little pat on the back, and that voice has a slightly different flavor of the inflation. Yeah. It's very helpful to, to hear that, you know, or just be aware that... Um, the feelings of superiority come right before an attack or the other side. You know, just, it's, um, because I feel like being aware of it helps me balance into who who I am. Uh Um, And so, you know, when I feel superior, then I can be aware that there's a good chance I'm going to feel crummy pretty soon. (laughs) And um, and just it's a way of catching myself. That's all. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's 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 broader than the critic in that the, the ego takes both poles, inflation, deflated, um, and the critic can reinforce and trigger those polarities. So it's not just the critic, but that the ego structure has that, you know, capacity for grandiosity and deflation and deficiency, and quite often oscillates between the two. Uh, but the critic can enhance or reinforce that process. Mm. Yeah, and just again to to, to so with so much with mindfulness and awareness, there's not so much necessarily doing anything with it. It's just noticing when you're inflated, you're inflated. It's like, okay, so I'm feeling expansive, and it's also, but it's also like, it's not just expansive, which is a healthy state. It's I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. That's the ego. Ego is always in comparison. It's always relational and it's always insecure because I don't know, well, I was top of the game in the class, but now I'm in a bigger class and I don't, maybe I'm so like, oh, I don't know if I'm top of the class anymore. And so it's always unstable rather than just a healthy sense of well-being or expansiveness. It's irregardless of who's out there to compare to. Gets in the way of appreciation, that's for sure. Yeah. So lady in front, yeah. What I feel so unsettling around the critic the authority or judgment is the emotion in my body. Mm-hmm. And when there's emotion in my body, it, makes it, it feels like it makes it even truer. Mm-hmm. So what kind of emotion are you talking about? Anxiety. Anxiety. Or fear. Uh-huh. So the, the anxiety or the fear makes it more true, makes right. it feel more true? Yes. The, the, the judgment? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, good to see. Yeah, good to see that's compounding for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it's just an interpretation of the data. You have a thought, and then you have a feeling that gets conditioned by the thought, which usually happens. Thoughts trigger feelings, and then there's an interpretation that that therefore means it's more evidence. Mm-hmm. And that's completely debatable. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's just a feeling, right. just like it's just a thought. Yeah. Just you know, in the same way that the th- judgment could be, I'm such a loser, and I feel like a loser. And just because of those two realities doesn't mean I'm a loser. It just means that that's what that there's a there's a thought and a feeling about that. Doesn't necessarily mean anything about reality. It just says what's happening in the moment, which is a thought and a feeling. 
the interpretation we make on that, that is what, what leads to suffering or not. And then the acting out and the reinforcing of that then it further further suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So just because I feel shame that I miss my friend's birthday um, doesn't mean doesn't therefore justify I'm a bad person. It just means I'm you know, I'm feeling shame and guilty about it. Period. And then the interpretation about what that means about who I am as a human being, that's all story. That we can either take to be true or not if we take it to be true we suffer but you're right when the feelings are stronger it does seem to make that more real I, I can I can sense what you're saying because because we're so governed by our feelings and if we feel fear or bad or guilty it's so strong in our experience that it feels true yeah yeah. So again, it's it's shifting from shifting to to a meta attention of, of 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 having a bigger awareness of what's happening. It's being lost in the feeling. It's like oh, sadness, guilt, shame feels like this. Just another passing thing in it in awareness. That's not who I am. It's just a conditioned emotion. Easy to say, harder to practice thank you yeah yes lady in the front here great is it on yes okay thank you um i've lived with uh, fear and anxiety I've lived with fear and anxiety as far back as I can remember, and especially around certain issues and uh, catastrophizing everything and and so forth. And so I recently had one of my fears became a partial reality, and instead of freezing, which is what I would have tended to do in the past... I'm like amazed that I'm dealing with it. And in some ways, because I'm, I'm old and I've had this rea- the, the, the critic, the negative reaction for so many years, this new reaction that's much more positive feels foreign to me almost. I don't, I don't know if I'm explaining myself mm-hmm. okay. It's like, whoa, is this being disloyal? What is, even though this is what I've wanted... Now that it's actually here, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> right, it's unfamiliar. Yeah. Right, and unsettling, because right. unf- even if it's what you want and it's more freeing or spacious or less suffering, it's, there's a discomfort. So you have to just kind of ease it, settle into the unknown. Like, br- bring that into your awareness too. There's fear, there's anxiety, there's less engagement, and there's also this feeling of uncertainty or you know, slightly unmoored. Okay, that too, and then over time, I guess we just get we get more f- comfortable with it. You know, I just thought, well, I've wanted to to rid myself of this forever, and now that I'm really on the path, you know, reaching that, mm-hmm. it's like, wait a minute. 
Yeah. So well, it's interesting. interesting you know, it's, it yeah. reminds me of, of you know the process of addiction that we you know addictions take up a lot of space. Mm-hmm. When we let go of addiction, it creates a lot of space. And it's very easy to fill it with another addiction because it's uncomfortable because we get to feel what's there that the addiction was covering. Right? It's the same with this. Right? So fear and anxiety and the critic, they're all addictions. Thinking is an addiction. We get addicted to everything. And when we let go of something, or you know, it creates more space. There's, we have to feel more. We have to hang out with that. Yeah, so Thank good you. work. Yeah. Thank you. Behind you, Lady Gray. Um, um, I was thinking on what you were talking earlier about the external criticism and the internal criticism. And in my case, at least, how much is has to be with lack of self self esteem? Uh-huh. So that's why probably I'm very critical. And in regards of the external criticism, is lack of self esteem criticize myself to try to fit in or to be likable of, and how much I pay attention of um, other people to like me uh-huh. or what they think about me. Mm-hmm. So um, I realized that I criticize myself a lot because probably I I like self-esteem and trying to always you know make no other happy but fit in you know mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if that has a lot to do with yeah it. no they're very related I mean I think the 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 habit of judgment diminishes self-esteem. And then the, the lack of self-esteem reinforces more judgment internally or externally. And so it, it's cyclical. It's a circle. It's yeah. A, yeah. It's a, yeah. It's and again, the... To break the, that pattern is... Pardon? To break that pattern, that cycle is... Yeah. Paid. Yeah. No, it, it's work. It's work. And I think that's where the... I mean, from my experience, the, the loving-kindness meditation was very helpful in coming back to a loving, kind relationship with myself. Um, and building that, building up that foundation that was much more internalized and not so externally uh, motivated or driven. Thanks. So we're going to wrap. I'll take questions after the break, um, but I want to. We got lunch time. I my stomach's rumbling, and I know if I take you too long, I'll, who knows? I'll. So um, we're going to break for about an hour. And um, did everybody bring lunch? And if not, anybody need instructions about where, they, where the deli is? No, there is a deli in Woodacre you can find quite easily. Um, so a few things. So um, enjoy your lunch. <laughs> Be mindful. Don't go yet. <laughs> a few things to say. Um, stay, stay with yourself and stay with the material. Like this is very rich material. You know, be feel free to engage in dialogue and connect with people, and and but see if you can stay within. Like, talk about this material. Like, this is a really good. The people who are here can relate to you and this material. So, like, use this time to explore it with somebody else. Like, you know, continue the exercise, or just you know, you know, if you if you choose to. Um, you're also free after lunch to you know take a walk. There's no retreat happening right now, so you're welcome to walk up in the up in the grounds, which is unusual. 
Um, we ask you not to go into the buildings because they're cleaning and getting ready for the next retreat, but you can take a walk up in the grounds and stuff. Um, and we'll ring a bell at two o'clock to, to bring you back. For those of you who are in the vicinity can hear the bell. A few uh, logistical things. Um, one is I have a lot of uh, um, stuff on the back table of things that I'm doing and things that I, courses and things that I teach. Uh, I do a lot of different things both here and uh, outside of Spirit Rock. Uh, my book is there. It's called Awaken the Wild. It's about my meditation and nature work. Um, I have some guided meditation CDs if you're interested in the mindfulness or the loving kindness practices. I have a mailing list there for events that I do outside of Spirit Rock. Um, I do a few different things I want to just bring a little attention to. One is um, I, I do have a meditation in nature retreat schedule, and I do mindfulness retreats outside in different places. Um, I do them at Esalen. I do them in New Mexico. I do them uh, kayaking in Baja, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Every March, there's, a, there's some information about that on the back table. Um, another thing that I'm doing... I'm actually flying to England uh, in a couple of days to do a teacher mindfulness teacher training, uh, supporting people to bring mindfulness into their work and their clinical practice. And so uh, I'm running a, a mindfulness teacher training here in San Francisco starting in May of next year. Uh, it's, a, it's a year-long program, four, four-day weekends, and there's information about that for anybody who has experience uh, with the practice and done some retreats. Um, check that out. You can find out all of this from, i got a couple of websites. One is awakenthewild.com and one is uh, themindfulnessinstitute.com uh, where I, it's more focused on, I take this mindfulness practice and teachings into companies uh, and schools and uh, corporations and whatnot and I do coaching and training and seminars. So you can get information about that. And then finally, um, just to say a few words about Dana for those of you, how many are new to Spirit Rock today? I bet there's a few. Yeah, quite a few. Um, so at Spirit Rock here, we're in a meditation center in the Buddhist tradition and uh, in the Theravadan tradition. And the way that the, the spirit of the teachings are offered here is they're offered um, as inexpensively as possible. What you pay goes towards running Spirit Rock and the staffing and um, mortgages and whatnot. The teachers who teach you, including myself, none of us are employees. We, we receive no benefits and we're not paid. Uh, we do this uh, out of our love of the practice and uh, love of the work and um, also in line with the tradition that the teachings are considered priceless and should be offered freely. So uh, in an ideal world, the, the Spirit Rock community, and this will happen over time, I think, will support Spirit Rock so much that we can offer this all with no cost. Um, and then you're just invited to donate as we're, we're, we're in the process of rebuilding this hall and this retreat center is all built on donations. So when you come to an event like this, you're invited to participate as much as you like and you're invited to also support, in this case, the teacher uh, continuing to teach. So you'll notice baskets in the, in the foyer and you're um, invited to um, think about the value of this practice and if you want to support the teachers continuing their work, in this case me going to teach on Monday and Tuesday and wherever else I'm going to teach, um, you are invited to reflect on that and to reflect on how you would like to support us. So you can give cash and checks and credit cards and whatnot and talk to people in the office if you have questions about that. Um, you can leave your car keys or wash my car. <laughs> 
So um, it's a practice, and like with any practice, it takes uh, um, it's a, it's a, it takes some getting used to, um, and also because it involves money, it's also usually a little more charged. And what I love about the dana system is is a somewhat um, equalizing system in that it allows those to who have more can give more, those who have less can give less. There's absolutely no expectation. Um, and there's no set amount. There's no. There's no fee. There's just whatever your heart is inclined to. Um, but as a practice, um, and as a practice that I do, because I come in, study here, and give dana to teachers, um, I reflect. Well, w- what's a meaningful offering for me? What What feels generous to me? What feels value versus a throwaway, or something that's too much? It burns. So we and we and we, we have different means at different times. So um, and I invite you to take it seriously, and I'm saying this not just for myself, but any time you come to an event here, um, the teachers work really hard to to develop themselves and to do this work, and I like to see the community in, uh, supporting them in as in a generous a way as they can, so we can do our work um, without having to worry about bills and uh, car washing payments and that kind of thing. <laughs> so thank you in advance for your generosity. Enjoy your lunch, and we'll see you back at uh, after two. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.